It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, am I being punished or favored? Coming up in this episode... Have you ever thought, life is really difficult right now, I don't know what I did, but God must be punishing me for something? If as Christians, if God is punishing us, what good does it do if we don't know why? Is our suffering in life just arbitrary and mysterious discipline, or is there more to it? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome everyone, I'm Rick, I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Thankful to be with you. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. We've got another week to be even better. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right. Nobody likes to suffer. Nobody wants pain, turmoil, uncertainty, tragedy, or sickness to take up continual residence in their lives. When a Christian suffers by facing hard things in their daily experience, it's easy to look at it as punishment. We, we see these harsh experiences as a signal that something's wrong, and we expect them to sap the joy right out of our lives. Suffering is easily seen as having little to no redeeming value. We think that it signals that God has ceased protecting us, and that means trouble. Well, Turns out the Bible has a lot to say about suffering, trial, and punishment. It explains in great detail the role suffering plays in our lives and the how and why of punishments that come from God. Jesus is the model for sacred sufferings. The question is, does God have a loving intent or an evil intent for his children's sufferings? Can we know? Yes, we can. We absolutely can, and we need to, and that's why we're talking about this today. So let's put this in perspective. To understand punishment, let's begin by understanding how God views suffering. First, we've got to take note that God permitted his own son to suffer. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to keep referring back to this chapter. And Isaiah was filled with prophecies about Jesus, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So let's start with verses 1 and 3 of Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. This verse describes Jesus as a tender and innocent in his youth. Later in the verse, it pictures Jesus carrying his cross after being beaten and bloody. He was despised when looked upon a man of suffering. So you read this verse and it becomes very, very plain. God did permit his own son to suffer. So suffering, there's got to be much more to it than punishment because he permitted his own son. Jesus knew that suffering would be his destiny. As a matter of fact, he explained it to his followers several times. We're going to pick one example, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The word suffer means to experience a sensation or impression, usually painful. And that's the key, usually painful. And he did have to go through things, have to go through very hard and very difficult things. And you say, well, why? We're going to unfold that as we go here. All of Christianity, though, all Christians look at the suffering of Jesus with great honor, with great respect, and with great reverence. Romans 8.32. 
He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we see and appreciate that Jesus' suffering has redeeming value. But God didn't spare Jesus from pain, crucifixion, rejection, suffering, ignominy, and shame. He didn't. And and you say, okay, why did he have to do that? Why couldn't he just come, be a good man, be perfect, and die? Well, here's the thing. You're dealing with a sinful world, and you're dealing with the justice of reclaiming a sinful world. And when you're dealing with a sinful world, the only path to redemption, to redeeming them, to buying them back, and to reconciling them is walking the path through the valley of hard suffering. Jesus knew it and graciously accepted it. That was his mission. That's what he came for. So we see suffering blatantly called out in Jesus' life, and it's a good thing because it was a price that needed to be paid. Now, God therefore sees suffering as necessary experiences for those who follow Jesus as well. We know this through Acts 14, 21 and 22. After they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, meaning pressure, we must enter the kingdom of God. So because it's in God's plan, we need to acknowledge and embrace the value of Christian hardship. For a disciple of Christ, the entrance into the kingdom of God isn't a four-lane superhighway, which is smooth and easy. It's a narrow way. Imagine walking up a Rocky Mountain pathway. It's steep, uneven, there are ruts, and muddy, slippery spots. It is even snake-ridden and buggy. It can be painful and lonely. This is the path Jesus walked. Martin Luther said, they gave our master a crown of thorns. Why do we hope for a crown of roses? Love that. So when we look at this and we realize what Jesus went through, and as a footstep follower, a disciple, if you're going to follow in his footsteps and he walked through the mud, guess where you're walking? Guess where you're supposed to walk? If he had to carry great loads in his life, guess what you need to learn to carry? Now, we can't do it the way Jesus did but we can do it to the best of our capacity. So Christian hardship is a big point here. We all understand the example of, let's take an athlete in training. They push their muscles to a point of pain and exhaustion in order to become stronger. There's great hardship and suffering required in order to be a champion. And if you take that example and you lock onto it, what does an athlete have to do? What does an athlete have to do? You get a picture of what does a Christian have to do? What does a Christian have to do? Because it's to be, to, to be the, the, the best, most successful example of Christ that you can possibly be. So we're seeing suffering in a very, very important way here. Let, let's focus a little bit differently now. God does discipline. We haven't talked about discipline yet. God disciplines us when necessary, and God implemented hardship when sin entered the human experience. Go all the way back to Genesis, uh, Genesis three seventeen into Adam's sin. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat it all the days of your life. And that word toil means worrisomeness, labor, or pain. And to sin in Scripture means to miss the mark. Anything less than perfect harmony with God is missing the mark. Therefore, suffering, hardship, pain, and toil are natural consequences of sin. Though this first sin brought the first suffering, there was a big consequence for an action. But was this a consequence or was it a punishment? Yes, (laughs) It was, okay. <laughs> it, oftentimes, especially as a parent, I, I, can, I can tell you from a lot of experience, oftentimes the consequence is the punishment. And this was something that was clearly laid out to Adam beforehand. You are to do this, you are to follow this way, and life is wonderful. But if you don't follow along, there is this consequence. So the consequence was laid out, and this was the discipline that came as a result of of not following after God, but having loyalty instead to Satan. So oftentimes consequences are the punishment from God. We, and we'll, we'll unfold that further as we go through this, this conversation. 
So let's go look at us now. Because God is calling us out of our sinful lives, his discipline towards us is to be expected. We know that through Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. So now this scripture in Hebrews deals with a lot of aspects of discipline, and we're going to actually take the scripture apart a little bit later in the podcast. You want to stay with us for this, because when you understand these verses, the idea of Christian suffering and Christian discipline makes so much more sense. So, so please stay with us for that. It's an important conversation that we're going to have later on. But what this does, folks, is this puts us in a position of saying, okay, we're seeing things, trying to see it from the highest perspective first. And we looked at Jesus first, and then we brought down the experience down to our level. And so there's a connection, a vital connection between what Jesus went through and what we go through. Now, it's different with us because we're not perfect but we're still working along the same pathway that Jesus laid out for us. So we're going to wrap this segment up with, with, with the, the question, suffering, is it punishment or is it privilege? Now, think about that for a second. Is it punishment or is it privilege? What does that mean? Is our Christian suffering because you did wrong? Or is our Christian suffering be a, a privilege that we get to be a part of? That's what this question is, and each time we answer the question, we hope to unfold it a little bit further so we can get a sense of what suffering really is. Go ahead, Jonathan. Suffering happens to everyone in every corner of every nation in the world. It is part of the natural state of things. All suffering is not a direct punishment from God, but it is a direct and necessary result of a world that is out of harmony with God. Direct punishment from God only occurs when his chosen people are involved. So Christian suffering is like a paradigm shift in thinking in that we attribute meaning and purpose to our trials. And the perspective of why we go through what we do is different from the average person. And we suffer like all human beings. God allows Christians to get cancer, go bankrupt, feel regret and shame. But the way we view the experience is different. And that's what we're going to start to look into. But I did have a quick question. Jonathan, you said direct punishment from God only occurs when his chosen people are involved. What, what, Rick, what does that mean? You know, when God, God turned the world over to Satan, and the suffering now, or the punishment rather, when God deals out a punishment, it has to do something with those who are attempting to follow him. And we are focusing on the Christians. We're focusing on those of us who say, I am a disciple of Christ. I'm not just a Sunday go-to-meeting Christian. I am a disciple of Christ. I am in the trenches. I'm willing to walk the walk and talk the talk. With that experience, because we are trying to follow him, suffering and punishment and discipline, as we will define in a few moments, come our way. They just do because, frankly, because God loves us. That's why. That's the bottom line. That's the whole answer. The world is out of harmony with God. God allows that to be. We are out of harmony with God. He's working us to come to a greater harmony with him in each and every one of our experiences. So suffering is basically universal, so much so that Jesus, the Redeemer of the world, had to suffer to bear our sins. So God sees suffering as necessary in our lives. What are the purposes and results of our sufferings? We now see that our suffering and punishments as Christians are not necessarily related to one another. Okay, Sufferings and punishment can be different. This means we need to define both Christian suffering and Christian punishment separately. So we're going to begin to, by looking at the broader picture of Christian suffering, we're going to look at how Christian suffering works and what Christian suffering brings. And again, we're just focusing on Christian suffering today. The broader topic of suffering 
is a huge stumbling block for atheists. The thinking being if there really was an omnipotent God, he would intervene, he would end all suffering. So for more on the permission of evil, which is more what that deals with, please see episode 882, So Why Hasn't God Destroyed Evil? And it's how he will, why he permits it and how he will end it. Go ahead and search 882 at christianquestions.com or on the home screen of the free Christian Questions app. But for now, back to Christian suffering, let's go back to the Isaiah prophecy that details Jesus's suffering. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. Pain, suffering, pierced, crushed, wounds, all of these things unjustly happened to Jesus. God wrote that prophecy through Isaiah, and Jesus fulfilled it. So suffering was clearly part of the plan. And that's a, that's a that's an important point for us to pick up on and and hold and actually embrace. We we need to begin to look at suffering as a road to growth, rather than a boy have I done something wrong situation. Every suffering doesn't mean you've done something wrong. As a matter of fact, many 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 of our Christian sufferings are because we're trying to do something right. So we need to see that because that's the path that Jesus himself walked. I think it would help. Um, if we were to wrap our heads around this, if we think about the purpose of our Christian suffering, we have to further differentiate between worldly suffering and Christian suffering. You know, Christians suffer just like non-Christians, but how we look at it as a way to learn, build character, and glorify God is certainly different. But there's also that privilege of, quote, suffering for Christ. That means suffering the consequences of standing up for godly righteousness. So, Rick, what is one of the purposes of Christian suffering? All right, there, there are several. Here, here's one. Christian suffering teaches us to completely rely on God and not ourselves. And that may sound simple, but think about this from the standpoint of the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Think about this for a second. The Apostle Paul is describing his own experiences. He's mature. He's, he's in leading the way. Every turn, he's leading the way. And yet, he says we are burdened so, so strongly, it was beyond our strength. We despaired even of life. Why? And he says, so we would learn to trust not in ourselves, but in God. So if the Apostle Paul had to learn that, we need to learn that. That's one of the reasons we have Christian suffering. Our sufferings teach us to rely on Jesus, and they give us fellowship with his sufferings. Philippians 3, verses 7 and 10. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We're connected then with his sufferings. And in Mark 1.17, Jesus said, follow me. And his life and path wasn't that of worldly power, riches, and glory. His life path was of sacrifice and suffering. So what are some other purposes of Christian suffering? Well, they also teach us how to reveal the life of Jesus within our own lives. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. We were afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, just like Jesus. But not crushed, not despairing, not forsaken, not destroyed. That's encouraging. 
But we have these different ways of suffering as well, mental, physical, emotional, and even spiritual suffering. So Jonathan, you read, so that the life of Jesus may be ma- may also be manifested in our body. That's an odd phrase. What does that mean? You know, when you look at that phrase, what we want to be is a reflection of the master. That's why you're a disciple. You're a follower. The idea is to grow up so that when people see you, they see Christ in you. So to have the life of Jesus manifested in our body is to have the experiences of Christian suffering, the experience of growth and development and maturity and fellowship and preaching the gospel and all of those things be reflected out of us. And for somebody to say, that person reminds me of somebody who follows Jesus. That's what it is. It's having him inside of us and coming out instead of me. We'd rather have him come out than me. That's the idea. That's what we're trying to do here. Back in 2014, we had our friend Vicki on the program while she was going through aggressive chemotherapy treatment. She commented on James 1, verses 2 through 4, which says, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And Vicki stated, I thought this scripture said, consider it joy. But I have since noticed it actually says, consider it nothing but joy. There are times when my focus is correct, and I realize I'm not fighting cancer. This is not my battle. I am fighting my character to be a Christian and to be fruitful. God has chosen cancer as my battleground. To hear more on how to be strong during difficulty, go to ChristianQuestions.com or our app and search episode 820, What is the Fruit of Your Life, Part 2. And Jonathan, how's Vicki doing today? Oh, she's doing great. Wonderful. Another purpose of uh, Christian suffering is they teach us how to conf- confront others who are suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we will be able to confront those who are who are in any affliction with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we comfort others who are suffering. Being able to understand what others are going through in order to comfort them is a big part of this, these sufferings of ours. Now, I always confuse the words empathy and sympathy, but I know that they're both important. <laughs> which is which? All right. Well, and and they are both important. And a lot of times we look at the word empathy and we, we sort of put it on the back burner. We really want to sympathize with somebody. But to sympathize actually means to have had an experience similar and to walk with somebody through that experience because you were there. You know what it feels like. To empathize is to have not had the experience, but to walk with them anyway. And that is a powerful thing. In my own Christian experience, speaking with many who've gone through a lot of different hard, hard hard things in lives. I haven't gone through the same things in my life, but I have had the utter privilege to empathize, to enter into their experiences, to be able to walk with them, to encourage them, to ask them questions, to, to, to point out scriptures, to, to be a shoulder to cry on so that they could stand more firmly. So whether you are sympathizing because you've been there or empathizing because you want to bear the burdens of your brethren, doesn't matter. What matters is we work together through that Christian suffering. Jesus is described as our sympathetic high priest in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, but I like the way the Phillips translation puts it. It says, for we have no superhuman high priest to whom our weaknesses are unintelligible. He himself has shared fully in our experience to temptation, except that he never sinned. So we in turn can comfort others when we understand what they're going through. Would you look at your difficult experiences differently if you knew they would help someone else going through similar experiences? You know, and again, that helps us to understand whether we sympathize or empathize. It gives us power to positively affect those around us. So we've talked about the purpose of Christian sufferings. They are to rely on God, rely on Jesus, share in the sufferings of Jesus, reveal Jesus in our lives, and to comfort others. That's the purpose Now, what are some of the results of our Christian sufferings? Rick, can you start us off? And there are lots of results. We're only going to deal with a few because of time constraints. But first result is our sufferings as Christians offer us 
blessing in the face of persecution. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Being reviled for the name of Christ, that's what I was talking about earlier before about how there may be consequences for standing up for godly righteousness. Swimming against the stream with our Christian beliefs puts us in the spotlight to be made fun of, or even worse. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, had, having an experience with some, some dear, dear Christian, Christian brothers and sisters that we just met recently, and they for very specific reasons of doctrine, had to leave the church that they were worshiping in. And it was a hard decision because they were so attached to, to those there. And we have been fellowshipping with them and studying, and they, they've wanted so badly to be able to share some of the things they're learning, and they've been shut down. And not only have they been shut down, but there's, unfortunately, and it's, it's heartbreaking, there are, there are rumors that are starting to pass around and all of this that are just, just, just misrepresenting things. To be reviled for the name of Christ is a hard suffering. But Jesus was reviled for the name of God the Father. Why would we not want to be reviled for the name of Christ? It's such an important description of what our Christian suffering, the blessing that it can bring us. It can be unnerving when the meanness comes from fellow Christians, because we're all supposed to know better and be kind, even in our doctrinal disagreements. Another purpose for Christian suffering is they build comprehensive Christian maturity. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations. Wait, what? Exalt in our tribulations? Is that asking a little too much? (laughs) Knowing that tribulation brings about (laughs) perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us. So this is growing up in Christ. What a beautiful personal lesson the Apostle Paul learned and shared with us. It's profound. What maturity. Think about what a privileged but difficult goal it is to have the proven character before God through Christ. Think about where God and Jesus see you and say, well done. Be with us for eternity. So we can't skip over steps to get through that door. It all starts with tribulation. Oh, exalting in tribulation. That's really tough. Plus perseverance in order to have that proven character. So what else would we say as a result of our Christian suffering? Well, they prove that our tested faith will bring praise, glory, and honor to God and to Jesus. And that, and that last scripture really kind of introduces this. We go further now with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this ties into 2 Corinthians 5.18. That's a pretty famous scripture that talks about the ministry of reconciliation. That's the future work of those in heaven who prove their faith through even the worst of times. They're going to have the work of helping to reconcile resurrected mankind back to God. And this is one of the rewards and privileges of the overcomers. And that becomes because of Christian suffering, okay? Jesus suffered, and he was the ransom. We suffer walking in his footsteps, and we get to be part of the reconciliation process. It all works together. If the ultimate result of our suffering is to honor the Father, am I willing to go through it? Compare our brief human lifetime of suffering in relation to eternity? Hmm. You know, this brings us to our last result of Christian sufferings. They produce eternal and glorious results that are beyond comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but through our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Suffering preparing us for glory? See, this initially seems counterintuitive. Again, ask though any athlete who trains hard, competes, and wins, they overcome every obstacle to be the best they can be. And that is exactly the point. So when we ask the question, suffering, is it punishment or privilege? It's starting to come into clearer focus now. While the suffering of the world are a consequence of sin and are not yet appreciated, Christian suffering is entirely different. We are called to suffer for the specific purposes of learning and maturing in Christ. Our sufferings fertilize the garden of our Christian discipleship to ensure that the fruitage of our lives is abundant. Ensuring the fruitage of our lives is abundant. Suffering is a key to getting the fruit. Let's keep clear on what it's there for. So suffering has a value that extends far beyond what we would naturally see. That means we need to pay attention. We can now see that Christian suffering is a privilege. Is Christian punishment also a privilege? Ah, now it deepens. (laughs) While we wouldn't quite call being punished as a Christian privilege in the full sense of the word, we will say that it's an important part of the privilege of being called to Christ. This whole aspect of our Christian lives has to do with being tasked with growing into Christ. Proper growth requires proper direction. Proper direction requires the need to be refocused. And that's really what we're going to be looking at now. So let's head back to Isaiah 53. Remember, this chapter prophetically describes Jesus. And in fact, for studying, when studying this, I read that Isaiah has so many prophecies about Jesus that it's sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel. So let's read Isaiah 53, 7 to 9, and we may need to be refocused through discipline, but Jesus didn't. His discipline wasn't corrective. It was instructive. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth." So in this segment, we want to talk about Christian be, Christians being disciplined. And yet we read these verses about Jesus. He wasn't being disciplined, but he had to have the discipline of the experiences to grow and learn. So we look at his example at the beginning of every segment so we can pause and consider Jesus is our example of how to handle suffering in the most godly way possible. So what's the purpose of our being disciplined as Christians? I have a quote that might help us with the answer. Start us off. Henry Ward Beecher said, tears are often the telescope by which men see far into heaven. Good quote. I like that. And and it sometimes it comes through difficulty. And that's really what we're talking about. Discipline from God, our Father, is for the sole purpose of bringing us back into line with him. Yeah, but that doesn't always work because some people, when disciplined, they leave the faith, they stop believing in God. Was the discipline too harsh? No, the child was too rebellious. And really, that's what it boils down to. And we will see how God's discipline unfolds as we look at this. Necessary discipline comes in degrees, as sometimes we grasp the lesson faster than other times. Hebrews 12, we read some of these verses in in the first segment. We're going to come back to them in more detail now. Hebrews 12, Jonathan, let's go to verses 5 through 8. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My children, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished or rebuked by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastens every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is teaching you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? If you do not have that discipline in which all children share, then you are illegitimate and not his children. All right. 
There's a lot in those verses, and it's talking about discipline and rebuking and chastising. And, and see, what, what are we talking about here? Well, the, the concept in verse 5, my child do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That word for discipline means the education and training. So that's the broad picture. It, the, the, the apostle is saying the discipline, the education and training that comes from God is going to be difficult, but it's going to be effective. How does he make it effective? Well, further in the verse, the, the apostle actually breaks this education and training down into three very specific kinds of steps, levels of education and training. Sometimes we need less of a level to get the job done. Sometimes we really need to be you know, smacked in the back of the head figuratively. This, these, th- these verses cover this these transitions. So there's three specific levels. Julie, let's get started with the first one. Do not lose heart when you are punished, the scripture said, and that means rebuked by him. This is the first level of training and the least painful. A scolding with words or a look disheartens. We acknowledge we have disappointed God and make a correction. We are disheartened in order to be refocused. So an example of this might be, I learn some juicy information about somebody and I really, really want to tell my friends, but I read a scripture that gets my attention and realize this would be wrong. So I ask for forgiveness and get back on track. I catch my own sin before it becomes an action. And the reason you catch your own sin is because you are in tune with the word of God. We're not going to catch our own sins if we're not in tune with it. So there's that intuitiveness that can be very helpful. And here, here's a word to the wise. We all want to be able to respond on that level because the rest of them get a lot harder, okay? So that's the place we want to respond, but you know what? Sometimes we don't. So what's the next level, Julie? So the scripture continued with, for the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. This is the second level of training. It is more painful, involves discipline through action, backed by firm words. Discipline means something needs correction and refocusing. This might not seem like love at the time, but it is important for our growth. Okay, so maybe that temptation to gossip was just too strong. And I told those friends what should have been kept private. And someone overhears, they tell the person what I'm saying, and that person confronts me. So now I feel shame and need to apologize, not only to that person, but for the others who I put in an awkward position of having information that they shouldn't be sharing. This reminds me of the Jewish folktale of a rabbi who told a woman who loved to gossip to release all the feathers in a pillow, and they were quickly blown away by the wind. He told her, now, get back all the feathers. But she said, that's impossible. And so it is with words and idle gossip, he told her. Words once spoken can never be taken back. There is no telling how far they will travel and what harm they could do. Think before you speak. And so this level of discipline gives you hurt in your heart. It gives you a sense of, I did something wrong, and there's, there's much more than self-correctiveness here. There is a pressing to put things back in order. We have to repent, and we have to act, and we have to be firm, and we have to be clear, and we have to be dedicated, and we have to be disciplined to get it done because we have done something wrong. This is a harder level of discipline, but a word to the wise. If you come to this level, don't let it go beyond here because it gets even harder. Julie, what's the third level of discipline here? Well, the scripture went on to say that he chastises, and that could be literal or figurative, every child whom he accepts. This would seem to be the opposite of acceptance. This is the third level of training and the most painful. The word chastises is also translated as punished and scourged. The Greek word means to literally or figuratively flog or scourge. There is pain inflicted for what we have done. Continuing in sin is different from making a mistake and repenting. So maybe that person who was gossiping wasn't me, which is good, (laughs) but maybe they hold a position in the church congregation and end up having to be removed from service. That would be a difficult but necessary punishment. It would. It would. And it's important to realize that the Lord loves us. The Lord whom he loves, he disciplines. That's the key. All of this is for the purpose, the sole purpose 
of keeping us in line or bringing us back into line with his will. That's what it's there for. It's not because God is angry. It's because he loves you so much that he wants you to grow appropriately as a representative of Christ. And I can tell you as a dad raising three children, when it came to discipline, it was hard to be hard with my kids, but it was important because I loved them more than I, than I wanted to back off from being too hard. I wanted to make sure they would learn God loves us that deeply. Yeah, but doesn't sometimes God is angry at what we've done because we do mess up? Yeah. Um, so, but how do we know if we are being deliberately punished or disciplined by God, or if it's just a natural consequence of what we've done? Well, one of the things we have, we have to, to look at is how aware am I of the circumstances? And is this natural consequence coming because of my own awareness, or did it come out of a, out of circumstances like, oh wait, well, what brought this on? Consequences can be God's discipline, and you know we saw in the Garden of Eden the consequences. God had already laid out that they're, they're dying, you shall die. So we don't necessarily need to know. What we need to realize is that it is corrective. That's the key. I need to be corrected. I need to be put back on the path. And I need to do whatever I must do with this suffering to make it a, an experience where I can grow by rather than something else. Well, that leads to a great question. What are the results of our being disciplined as Christians? Because we can fight it or we can let it, we can have it help us grow. Yeah, and, and that's what good, getting to the results at this point is really important because we're talking about the, the heavy, heavy disciplines of the Lord. The first result that we're going to discuss, and there are many, we're only going to discuss a few. The first result is God's discipline will yield fruits of righteousness. If we are properly exercised by it. And Rick, that's a big if. Yes, Let's is. continue in Hebrews 12, verses 9 and 11. Moreover, we had human parents to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not be even more willing to be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share his holiness. Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time, but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And if we haven't been trained by it, it was a wasted opportunity. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a, a lot of thought in just a few words. We have the opportunities to be trained just like the athlete, to put the work in, to feel the soreness and the pain so that we can grow. And if we, if we fight against it, then we're essentially fighting against the loving, caring, directing hand of God. We don't want to be in that position. Another result of being disciplined as a Christian, God's discipline will bring happiness into our lives. If we follow it, and that's a big if. <laughs> Let's read Job 5, verses 17 through 19. Behold, how happy is the man whom God reproves, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he inflicts pain and he gives relief. He wounds and his hands also heal. From six troubles he will deliver you, even seven evil will not touch you. Uh, Jonathan, I love the way you say that, if we follow it. We can be happy if we follow it because God disciplines us because we are special to him. We are beloved to him. He wants us to have that happiness, and we are to, to go through the hardness and the suffering of the things that we've done wrong so we can learn that happiness, but it's got to be a decision. Another example, another result of, of God's discipline in our lives. God's discipline will grant us blessing and relief from adversity. If we apply it, and that's a big if. <laughs> Let's read Psalm 94, verses 12 and 13. Blessed is the man who ye... You chasten, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, that you may grant him relief for the days of adversity. We've been saying the Christian life is all about adversity. Why are we getting relief from it? How does that work? <laughs> well, relief from adversity comes through perspective, comes through understanding, comes through acceptance. When you see somebody who's really suffered for Christ, and you walk up to them and you talk to them, uh, more often than not, if they are really, truly following in, in Jesus' footsteps, they are joyous. And you think, how can you be that way? Because their perspective is they've been relieved of the adversity because they have the privilege 
the privilege of sharing with Christ. So relief from adversity can come if it goes away, but it can also come because it stays, because that is part of the growth from Christian suffering. One other example of the results of uh, God's discipline. God's discipline will comfort us because he's faithful and loving in his discipline. As long as we continue in it, that's a big as long. You keep saying that, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Let's read Psalm 119, verses 75 and 76. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. That's quite a statement. Can we make this same statement of faith? In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. You love me so much, you've made it hard for me. Thank you. That's really what we want to see here. So, Jonathan, suffering. Let's ask the question again. And hopefully, folks, this is becoming more and more clear. Is suffering punishment or privilege? While it is never a happy prospect to be facing discipline from God, it is a source of strong encouragement and hope. God's discipline towards us is never an angry reaction. Rather, it is always a measured and loving response to help us correct, refocus, and grow in Christ. If we look at God's discipline in our lives and said, he's, he's just mad at me, we don't understand our Father. He loves us, and so sometimes he is angry. But it's because he loves us, because he wants us to grow through the experiences. We never should forget these things. It is comforting to know that being in God's hands when we have done wrong has always has the potential, always has the potential for growth. How should we frame our internal thinking and prayerful responses to God when we face suffering? Realizing how suffering and discipline are powerful signs of God's favor can be life-changing. So next we need to internalize what we've observed. The internal conversations that we have with ourselves regarding suffering can really help us to focus on giving our burdens to our Father when we pray. And it comes down to focusing so the burden ends up in the right hands. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 one more time for some more insights. We know that Jesus gave the overwhelming burden of his suffering over to his Father, knowing that God's will would ultimately bring peace, justification, life, and glory. Verses 10 to 12, please. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So here in these final verses of Hebrews 53 that we're going to be considering today, we see that Jesus gave it all. It says, the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. So he buys back humanity with the sacrifice of, of, of his blood, but he offers his life as an offering for sin. He is developed as a perfect human being through the suffering, and because of that, he can bear the transgressions of humanity. The scripture says he learned obedience by the things that he suffered, he experienced. He experienced. That means he gained the privilege and opportunity to actually carry our sufferings, and now he makes intercession for our transgressions. He is an offering for sin, a ransom for all. That's what Jesus did with his suffering. Let's talk a little bit about self-talk. Self-talk means our internal dialogue. You know, those unspoken thoughts that run through our head all the time. Oh, yeah. And if we're, yeah, if we're generally a more negative person, our self-talk is more negative. So how should we talk to ourselves about our experiences of suffering? And there, there's several ways, and be, before I get into the first one, one of my challenges is my self-talk often is not very good. I'm very, very mean to me. 
That shocks me. <laughs> well, that, that completely it, shocks me. But and and I have to work on it because I have to realize that I am am and in God's hands, and I need to be more respectful to see God in me instead of me in me. So, anyway, how should we talk to ourselves? We need to ask ourselves key questions. Jonathan, let's go to Psalm forty-two, verse five. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. This is David talking to himself. (laughs) Why are you in despair, O my soul? We can hear him counterbalancing the negative with hope and help in God. So this is a recipe for speaking to ourselves in a godly fashion, and this will help us endure the sufferings and experiences that we have. And suffering can take us off course. It hurts. We can either stay in that condition or we have a choice to recenter. Am I going to make that choice to look up again from my despair? Prayer is that way to recenter. Explain and discuss. We're hurting. We can grow to a point of praise, bringing us back to where we need to be. Take the experience for the good or wallow in it and never recover from it. Choose praise. So how should we talk to ourselves about our experiences of suffering? Well, let's intentionally recall the focus on God's character. Lamentations 3, verses 21 through 24. This I recall to my mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Real real quick, Jonathan, that's a fantastic scripture for a memorize. If you want to memorize scripture, go with that one and see if you can get that because it's great for self-talk. Absolutely. Hey, I read this quote somewhere. As the eagle soars above the storm cloud, live at such an altitude of Christian experience as to enable you to rejoice in the Lord always and in everything to him give thanks. That's great. So you go back to that lamentation scripture. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. I am talking to myself. Folks, the scriptures instruct us as to how to address ourselves so we can manage through the sufferings and difficulties of our lives. Another example of our self-talk, reaffirm God as our sovereign. His protectiveness and our trust in that protectiveness allow us to rejoice from within. No matter what the circumstance, rejoice from within. Psalm 28, verses 6 and 7. Blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song, I shall thank him. It starts from deep within. He's heard the voice of my supplication. That voice often isn't out loud. He's my strength, my heart, way within me, trusts in him. I'm helped, and then my heart exalts, and then my song comes from that. So you see, the self-talk on the inside can produce the actions on the outside. We need to focus in on that talking to ourselves in a God-honoring fashion. We need to rest in his care. Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. If only we could be just like David and say, my soul finds rest in God. I don't have to be anxious or worried. I can rest in the suffering because he is my fortress. So this is how we should talk to ourselves. Our inner dialogue should be positive and full of hope and trust, even if we have to repeat it over and over again. So how should we talk to God about our experiences of suffering? So there's, these are two sides to this very, very important coin of what goes on inside of our head and hearts, talking to ourselves and now talking to God. How do we talk to God? Well, first and foremost, let's confess our sins and our transgressions to him. Psalm 32, verses 5 and seven. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. But Rick, he already knows all our sins. Why is it so important to confess them? Because we don't know our sins well enough. That's why. You're right, he does know. But for us to bring our sins before the Father is to become 100% vulnerable for those sins, to say them out loud to our, our Heavenly Father or within the context of prayer, but to be specific, 
to be clear, to, to, to not withhold the details mm. is such an important basis for us to be able to learn how to deal with them. And that's what David did. And that's why David is such an amazing example of not only one who talked to himself in a godly fashion, but talked to his father and did find forgiveness for very horrible, horrible sins. So it's a the very, word accountability comes to mind. You absolutely. become accountable for what you've done. And the, the greater we are in our details to our father, the more accountable we're looking to be. And that is a way to truly be blessed. We need to declare to God our personal trust in him. Psalm 31, verses 14 through 16. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your loving kindness. This means we should express the trust that we give him, declare our trust and faith in him, that he will fulfill his promises to us. Now, I don't remember ever saying out loud to the Lord in my prayers, I trust you, you are my God. So saying this over and over again during a hard experience and believing it will change how we view what we're going through. And you know, for for me, something like that, I've had the experience where there's been such a hard thing in front of me that... I said to the father, I have to trust you. I, I have no idea what to do, and this is coming in the next five minutes. What do I do? What do I say? How do I act? Father, it's yours. Let me just, and my prayer usually is, help me see what you want me to see, just That's so good. that That's I can good. trust in you. Another, another way to, to, to talk to our Father uh, in, 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 in the context of our sufferings, proclaim to Him our need for His protectiveness, His righteousness, and standing in His name. Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 31, verses 1 to 3. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You know, there's so much in these verses. Folks, Yeah, you, you have to get the show notes and look at these scriptures and put them in context because it helps us to understand the depth of prayer that will help us manage through suffering. When we see these things, you are my rock and my fortress for your name's sake. You'll lead me. You'll guide me. Your righteousness is going to deliver me. I I know you're hearing me. There's so much here. And to tell the Father that we understand these things in faith and let him gently guide us through whatever his providence might be. This is how we talk to our Father. Ask God for his presence, his principles, and his providence to be revealed. Psalm 143 verses 8 through 10. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. Deliver me, O Lord, from my enemies. I take refuge in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I need to learn the ways in which I need to walk. And God is a delivering God, not a tormenting God. This is crucial to remember no matter what my sufferings are. It is. It is. To put it in perspective. And and folks, that's why we need to learn to talk to ourselves in the midst of our suffering. And we need to learn how to talk to the Father in the midst of our suffering. Because those are two sides of this coin that put things in order so that we can see his direction and find the growth and find the maturity that the suffering is to bring to us. Such an important aspect of our lives. So finally, Jonathan, the last time I'm, I'm asking the question, suffering, is it punishment or is it privilege? Christian suffering and discipline have a profound and eternal purpose. Without them, it is impossible for us to be faithful to our call. Let us therefore retrain our minds. Let us see our suffering for Christ and our discipline when we commit sin as God's strong and loving hand, guiding and directing our lives so we may honor him with every breath. That's a challenge. That's a serious growth prospect, but something we want 
to focus in on and do. And Jonathan, the bottom line here is there is joy in our trials and our sufferings. And we know that. We've seen that through all of these scriptures in this, in this uh, episode today. One final scripture that really focuses this in, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your, your faith produces endurance, and let your endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So folks, the bottom line here. Our sufferings, the disciplines that the Father brings us, whatever, whichever side of the coin it is, it is a privilege. Why? Because as a footstep follower of Jesus, we are blessed with the opportunity to walk where he walked. Not the same way, because we're not perfect, but to walk with the same kinds of experiences, the same kind of growth in Christ toward God so we can honor him with everything. It says, consider it all joy. That's a lot of all right there. That's a lot of joy. That's everything. It's all joy when you encounter trials. Why? Because this is God saying, I love you. I love you and I want you to grow and develop so you can be faithful and you can be with myself and my son for all of eternity. This is why we suffer. Praise God think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions in your favorite podcast channels, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, where do the human soul and spirit go when we die, part one. Where do they go? Talk to you next week.